This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 328. Welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I am your host, Riley Bowman, and I am really excited, guys, today to present this episode to you because it is just jam-packed with a lot of historical information, which is something that we've never really quite had on the podcast before. And it comes uh, courtesy of Ashley Lubinsky of the Cody Firearms Museum in Cody, Wyoming. Getting ready very soon for a grand reopening of that museum. It is already currently open. It has been open. Uh, but they are they will have all their new displays and exhibits and everything uh, open for this grand reopening on July 6th of this year. Really, really, really cool. Yes, Cody, Wyoming is kind of in the middle of nowhere. Even for me from Denver, it's a good seven-hour drive, but it's in beautiful country, not too far from Yellowstone National Park. So you might plan a trip where you hit Yellowstone, you hit Jackson, you hit Grand Teton National Park, all that cool stuff, and then just swing an hour or two to the east over to Cody and drop in there to the museum. I know that they'd really appreciate that. One of the most uh, remarkable, amazing collections of firearms uh, anywhere in the United States, uh, highly educational. I know you're going to enjoy it. I'm looking forward to my own trip there in August as I head up there for the uh, Wyoming Governor's Match uh, for the three, third year in a row. Yeah, that'll, be a, that'll be a fun time. Uh, but uh, anyway, today's episode made possible by Guardian Nation. So we appreciate your, your love and support of our episode sponsors. Uh, Guardian Nation, of course, being our special membership program for uh, for all things Concealed Carry here at ConcealedCarry.com and the Concealed Carry podcast. Uh, we have a 14-day free trial of Guardian Nation. You've literally got nothing to lose. Just go get signed up. It's super easy. I know you're going to enjoy the free content that's available to, well, I say free, free once you're a paid member. <laughs> you're going to enjoy the special special content available to you as members in the constantly growing and ever-expanding collection of, of videos and special training content. So uh, you, I know you'll enjoy that. You'll enjoy the discounts off of special products off of our site. You always get a constant 10% off everything on the rest of our website when you're a Guardian Nation member. Plus, we have tons of great uh, additional discounts for ammunition, for firearms, such as Honor Defense, and other things. Uh, also, the quarterly box that we send out full of awesome, specially curated gear. Uh, we ship those out in February, May, August, and November. And so, yeah, there's tons of things to love about being a member of Guardian Nation. Try the 14-day free trial now, concealedcarry.com forward slash 14-day, 1-4-D-A-Y. And also a special, uh, we'll call it an honorary sponsor uh, spot for the Cody Firearms Museum. Uh, which is uh, actually part of the Buffalo Bill Center of the West. But again, go go check them out if you get the chance. We'll make a special trip for it. I think you'll really enjoy. And so now, at this point, I am pleased to replay back for you the interview I just got done recording with Ashley Lubinsky, Robert W. Woodruff Curator at the Cody Firearms Museum. She is a literal walking encyclopedia of firearms history that I, I, I think you're going to really enjoy this episode here today. So let's cue that up now. So I've got Ashley Lubinsky with me, and we are talking today about historical firearms, and hopefully we'll talk a little bit about historical concealed carry firearms. 
Uh, and Ashley is the curator of the Cody Firearms Museum at the Buffalo Bill Center of the West. I got to read that because that's a long word. Uh, I, I'm familiar with the Cody Firearms Museum. I went to it long time ago. Like uh, it's been, I don't remember. I don't remember exactly how long, but it's been over a decade for sure. And I thought it was pretty cool then. But uh, Ashley has been working really hard <laughs> on a, a complete renovation of the museum. And it has been really exciting following you. I've been stalking you on social media, Ashley, because it's been really cool to see all these uh, these new displays and exhibits and things that you've been getting uh, put together there at the museum. So uh, anyway, welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, Ashley. Thanks so much for being here. We're thrilled to talk with you. Uh, for, for folks that maybe aren't you know that familiar with who you are and and also your work maybe you could just give us a quick uh, bio yeah so i like you said i run the cody firearms museum in cody wyoming and if you're not familiar with that collection it's one of the largest in the united states it spans about 800 years of history a lot of times people think because we're a part of a western network of museums that we're only a western firearms museum not true uh that because is a part of the mythology because we got started as the Winchester Arms Museum because we inherited the Winchester collection from uh, Orlin Olin Corporation in the 1970s. But we have international firearms. We've got things that predate firearms. We've got crossbows, longbows, um, and then we've got more than 20,000 rounds of ammunition in the collection. And right now I'm the project director on a $12 million renovation of that, which we'll talk about. And then in addition to my work at the museum, I also uh, am a consultant. And so I work for a range of different museums around the country on their firearms collections, working with them on their firearms collections. And with the consulting business, I also do a lot of writing, uh, producing some television shows. Uh, I'm on camera a lot. And I am also an expert witness in criminal and civil cases concerning firearms and ammunition, uh, especially historic rooted um, cases. And then uh, I just founded the first academic association in the country for the study of firearms history and museums. Believe it or not, there aren't really organizations out there that do that. There's one international one that has been around for a couple of decades, but uh, there's really no way for people in the university system to kind of study guns in terms of material culture. If you want to study guns, it's more of a kind of socio-political economic topic. And so we just started that organization and uh, just got our 501c3 status. And so we'll be doing a lot more with the university system as well as museums around the country and around the world. That is awesome. Uh, and, and if folks, if you haven't seen, uh, there's a really cool show on Discovery Channel called uh, Master of Arms. And uh, you'll see Ashley there as well. She, she, you kind of alluded to that. But uh, as is typical, because I, I do it too, when I'm doing my own bio, I'm like, you know, I, you actually did a really great job. <laughs> you did a really great job of, of talking about yourself. Uh, but uh <laughs> You know, that, don't... that makes me sound so bad. <laughs> no, <laughs> you're no, really good at talking about yourself. <laughs> and it's a, it's a, it's a great thing. Uh, you're doing a lot of stuff. In fact, Michael here comments on Facebook. Dang, she is a very busy woman. <laughs> yes, yes, I do not sleep much right now because uh, our museum reopens on July 6th, and right. so we are scrambling to get it all done. We'll have over 10,000 artifacts on display. That's amazing. So, and that's, you know, why we wanted to try to make sure we got you on uh, now because, you know, a few weeks in advance here of this grand uh, reopening of the museum uh, and its newly renovated state. Uh, really, really exciting. So, folks, if you are anywhere in the neighborhood, it's not like, I mean, Cody, Wyoming is not, 
not close to anything big, but uh, uh, it would be worthwhile your time, I think, to try to go there and, and check this out. And even, even if you can't be there for the grand opening, I think you should uh, try to make a trip out there. I'll be there in August. I will be coming up uh, most likely for the Wyoming Governor's Match. Oh, uh, then I will see you there. Yeah, the three-gun match. And uh, that'll be my opportunity to make sure I stop in there and check out the new museum. So I'm really excited about we'll that. Doing, uh, we're doing a reception. So we're uh, the host sponsor of the Governor's Match. And so we will be um, hosting a reception on Saturday night and we're still trying to work out the logistics. We're fingers crossed, hopefully going to be doing a raffle uh, for people to be able to shoot, not the guns from our collection, but um, reproductions of older firearms, uh, shoot blanks on our property because we actually have 40 acres. So it'll be pretty fun. Uh, uh, That's awesome. That gets me even more excited now. Um, So uh, David here actually says, uh, you are the reason he watches uh, a master of arms. <laughs> well, and I have to so. say watched because we did not get renewed for a second yeah. season. But, that's right. Uh, uh, but you can also see me on gun stories. Um, that's the show that I, um, I've been a producer on and I'm on camera. You know, I'm the one, we're the one sitting in the chair saying 1985. Yep. Um, but I've been on gun stories for many years and I just actually last weekend filmed the next season. Uh, so I'll be on that and I pop up and random places on random networks yep. seemingly all the time. Um, I, I think it might have something to do with the fact that I might be the only woman studying this in the country. <laughs> uh, that's amazing. It's remarkable. Um, yeah. So gun stories with Joe Montaigne is a fantastic show on the outdoor channel. And, uh, I, I'm friends with Michael Bain, you know, you, you obviously know Michael. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, that's a, that's really cool. Um, how did you get into this? Like what, what made you go, I want to be a curator at a museum in the middle of nowhere with thousands and thousands of guns. Yeah. When you say it like that, it sounds pretty crazy. Um, (laughs) But I actually didn't grow up around guns. So I spent my whole life wanting to be a doctor. I've had, uh, I think, about 15 surgeries at this point, and I was in a wheelchair for a little bit. And so I always wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. And I was always interested in the history of medicine. And when I went to college, I was going to school for the sciences because that was still kind of the track that I was on. But I had gone on a Civil War medicine tour and they had talked about how the advances of weapons technology altered how medical technology had to function on the battlefield. And kind of the specific thing that they were talking about was the development of the clinically shaped bullet, uh, the Minier ball, Mm -hmm. and how a cylindrical shaped bullet uh, causes injuries versus the round ball that you had prior to that. And I thought that was really interesting. And it was kind of the first time that I considered that, you know, people work at historic sites and museums. And so I just got hooked and I changed my major to history. And my mom who's a physics teacher told me you better have a job when you, when you graduate. And, uh, so I had to uh, get some internships under my belt because I had shadowed surgeons and I had done all of this stuff for this kind of medical career that wasn't going to happen. And so I, um, I got an internship at a military museum in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where I'm from, called Soldiers and Sailors Museum. And I basically, they put 200 guns in front of me from the Civil War through modern day. And I had to identify what they were, what had been modified, all of that collections information. And I just really, really got hooked on the history of the technology. And also while I was at that internship, I, there was a gun that was on display that a Civil War soldier had hand carved every battle that he fought in into the stock. And that was kind of my 
realization that this is much bigger than a history of technology. I mean, this is a history of people. And so after that, I did everything I could to learn about firearms. I took my, you know, NRA first steps course and I learned to shoot historic and modern guns because they are so technical that you can read about how a wheel lock fires, but like, unless you've actually fired one, you know, it really changes kind of your perspective on how you talk about it. And so I learned to shoot um, a bunch of different types of firearms and I basically got any internship that I could. And, um, a couple of years later, I ended up as an intern in the botany department of the Smithsonian because, you know, you take what you could get. Uh, I know nothing about plants, still don't, but I was researching U.S. expeditions. And when I was there, I had a Smithsonian email account. And so I emailed the curator of the Firearms Museum who didn't advertise for an intern that summer. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, he said, you know what? why don't you come over and see the collection? And I'll never forget it because I had bleach blonde hair and I was what uh, the, the category of intern in DC that you would maybe call a skin turn. Uh, skin turns are the interns that don't realize maybe your skirt should be a little bit longer. Um, and you should, you know, it's not a great term, but there's a great classification of DC interns. So if I had to fall under one, I was that, you know, and I was in a sundress and hot pink stilettos and it was before the museum opened. And I'm sitting there and like the front of the lobby of the National Museum of American History is empty. And they call uh, David Miller, who's a curator, and they're like, your appointment's here. And he comes down, he looks right at me and he walks right past me. <laughs> and I was like, it's me. Um, and then he and I you know, developed a really good um, friendship from there. And I actually, towards the end of that summer, I was going in at like 5 a.m. to my botany internship and then popping over to the Smithsonian uh, National Museum of the American History to look at the firearms. And I ended up staying there in multiple capacities for about three years when I moved into grad school. And I moved into grad school and I taught military history, the weapons portion of military history to undergrads in grad school. And then um, I continued to do research at the Smithsonian and do independent studies and that kind of thing. And then when I got my... Um, when I got my degree, I was hired out in Cody full time. I had been working between the two organizations because they're affiliated for a few years prior to that. And um, when I, in 2013, they didn't have a succession plan for the curator. The curator was in his 80s. And so they brought me out to kind of learn the ropes of, you know, how to be a curator on a real fast track. And uh, when I was 24, I think is when I actually took over the museum, which wow. is very, very young for that. Yeah. And at 24 is when I took over as project director of the renovation as well. Wow. Yeah, that was a lot. It's ba very long baptism by fire. <laughs> yeah, a lot of learn on the job, uh, a lot of learn on the job. And the most important thing um, is, you know, especially with collections like this, I mean, I, my collection spans 800 years. I can't possibly know everything about everything. Mm -hmm. And so I have never pretended to know more than I did and always just been like, I don't know. And I find out. And so you learn a lot on the job when you work with collections of this size. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about the actual collection uh, at the uh, Cody Firearms Museum. It's a great collection. I mean, it's it's uh, huge. We, we know that, that right? Have, but, oh, it's huge. Yeah. We have about 7,000 firearms in the collection. And um, it's it's kind of hard to fully describe, but we always say that we have the most comprehensive public collection of firearms in the United States. And so some museums around the country, they really are pretty strong in like you know, Sammy Davis Jr.'s guns or, you know, famous people's firearms. And I'm speaking, of course, about the NRA Museum, which is an amazing collection. But our, you know, area, because we started as the Winchester Collection, was much more of a technical research collection. So we have 
like every weird changing model of most guns. And so we do have holes in the collection that we're trying to fill, but it really is comprehensive in that respect. And we do have, you know, we've got on loan one of John Wayne's guns. We do have that as well, but we have some of the craziest early prototypes that nobody even knows existed because mm. they were part of the Winchester collection. They were never adopted. And here they sit, you know, in our vaults and now in the new museum on display, you know, for example, uh, one of the most underrated gun designers of the 1800s is William Mason. Uh, William Mason was one of the people that designed the Colt Model 1873 revolver, which is iconic. But uh, he also was hired away from Colt by Winchester to make a revolver that was similar to that when they were kind of fighting back and forth when Colt got the lever action patent to produce lever actions, you know, Winchester hired William Mason, but then William Mason stayed on and he modified a lot of Browning's patents that he sold the in the white prototypes to Winchester for. But he also, um, we found these early toggle lock mechanisms that might, might predate some of Browning's semi-automatic technology. Hmm. And you would never know that because it's just been sitting in the vaults. Um, we also have a lot of Winchester's kind of military history in the collection, um, early anti-tank, rifles that they were developing in the 19 teens that weren't adopted. And so we've got just weird stuff like that. Uh, Bill Ruger was on our board. So we have a lot of his personal collection in the museum, but pretty much you name it. And I probably have something like it uh, in the collection. And the weakest areas that we have are international, uh, but we do have a lot of international guns, but it's not comprehensive. And then um, more modern stuff. The Winchester collection came out in the 1970s. So everything we have from them goes up to the 1970s. And then we got, you know, part of the Remington collection, the Marlin collection, the Parker collection. Um, and so it grew kind of from that time period. But I would say probably from like 1975 when the collection came out of here to today, it's it could really use some work and we're working on it. It was just, you know, we have very few staff members and the renovation had to take precedence. So once we open, we'll be making a huge push for kind of contemporary collecting to kind of backfill that part of the collection. Wow. wow. <laughs> Eric here comments. Uh, she makes me feel so lazy. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, so, uh, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about some of the, some of the greats, uh, you know, actually, I just got done recently reading, uh, uh, shoot, I'm drawing a blank all of a sudden, a fantastic book. It's sitting over there and I'd grab it um, about kind of, you know, the history of, uh, of, of firearms, uh, particularly here in America. But uh, we got John Moses Browning. We've got uh, Samuel Colt, uh, you know, a number of these uh, guys that everybody knows their names. And, and I'm glad you mentioned one that people probably don't really know a lot about. Um, but, but tell us, I mean, Kind of give us maybe like a, this is a big ask, a big ask, I'm sure, but maybe like a two minute spiel on like a quick rundown of how everything came to be with Colt and Browning and, and kind of how that's resulted in, in, I think a lot of the farms, what we have here today. Um, well, Colt, are you, you want Colt or the Browning Winchester connection? I can do both. Let's start with Samuel I'll Colt. Go with my two minutes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so Sam Colt first. Yeah, let's go. So I'm going to give you the, it's actually, I was just serving um, with the Organization of American Historians and the National Park Service. I was just serving as a scholar uh, for the new Coltsville Historic Site. And now I will say I'm not a cult historian. I'm not going to pretend sure. to be, but uh, there's a lot of kind of crossovers with a lot of the early industries. And so when you talk about Colt, one of the earliest contributions that he brings to the table is kind of precision machinery, uh, interchangeable parts, and the assembly line. And um, people might go, but Ashley, that was Eli Whitney Sr. Well, 
Yes and no. Um, so Eli Whitney Sr. is really much more credited with the kind of idea of interchangeability. I mean, there was some interge- interchangeability uh, with what he developed, but um, his gun background was a little bit like, it was a little clouded because uh, in 1798, I think, Eli Whitney Sr. was, um, he got a government contract to make 10,000 muskets and he did not deliver on time. Mm. Uh, they were ultimately made, but he did not deliver on time. And his son, Eli Whitney Jr., um, kind of reorganized the company. Um, so he creates kind of the idea of that. And then John Hall, um, you know, he kind of pushes the idea of interchangeability even further in the early 1800s. But it's really Sam Colt creates a machine for interchangeability and pre- precision machinery. And Henry Ford, when he implements his Detroit Highland Park factory in 1910, is directly impacted uh, by Colt's of assembly line processes and then he also visits winchester in 1908 or 1909 i always say that because we've got all these primary source letters where people are like did he come in 08 or 09 like what did he say uh because nobody records that kind of stuff right and um they, so he they came don't think to it's gonna be, oh sorry what's that i was gonna say they don't, they don't think it's gonna be history at the time that that history is exactly. being made, right? <laughs> we have a great letter, that letter, which is, um, it, it's a letter to, I believe, Edwin Pugsley, maybe, uh, who was the executive vice president of Winchester and the guy that coined the term gun that won the West after World War One. But um, there's a letter where, you know, they basically go, Henry Ford says he's going to build 100 gun- or hundred cars a day. That's crazy. Uh, <laughs> so it's also really cool to see kind of the flavor of the personalities uh, engaged with that. So there's this connection to kind of larger industries that occurs with Samuel Colt. Um, there's the other part of Samuel Colt. Um, so he's not super successful with the Patterson, um, and the early kind of, uh, company, but when he moves to Hartford, he does a lot of different things that makes him financially successful. And what I don't think a lot of people realize with Sam Colt is he dies pretty early on, um, in the, in the kind of history of the company. I mean, he dies in 1862. And um, he develops some successful guns in the 1850s. He also develops um, not a traditional, a traditionally considered act company town, um, but he does develop kind of this Coltsville. So he has housing for a lot of his employees. He creates extracurricular activity activities, continuing education programs. Um, but you know, it's really the legacy left behind that creates Colt, the man, the myth, the legend. Mm. Um, and they're doing some research right now about kind of the, the iconography, the story about Colt and the ship with the, you know, the wheel, you know, and that inspired him, even though there were revolvers before Colt's revolver. Um, and so they're really trying to dig in right now into a lot of the primary source documentation of, you know, we how true is, you know, all of that stuff? Because what we kind of are starting to realize is Sam Colt at the onset of the Civil War gets kind of busted for selling to both sides and it really hurts his reputation. Um, and he dies, you know, in, in 1862. And so, you know, his reputation, his personal reputation doesn't necessarily kind of kick back in during his lifetime. And so we're kind of su- like, and this is all, you know, research is currently being done, but we kind of suspect that Elizabeth Colt had a lot to do with, you know, kind of how we see and remember, you know, Samuel Colt's legacy. And when you think about the fact that he died in 62, I can't tell you how many times that I hear people, you know, refer to Sam Colt in the same breath as the 1873. Well, he wasn't around for that. And that's where, you know, designers like William Mason come in um, and they get very involved. The other thing about Colt, and then I'll transition to Winchester because I'm over my two minutes, um, (laughs) is that there's so many things that I could talk about, but with Colt that people don't really understand is Colt's not the only designer in that factory. You know, uh, uh, Alicia Root uh, plays a really big role in that and he's a superintendent for 
a little bit. And they're working on a lot of those guns that bear the Colt name. And that's the same with Liam Mason. Um, and one of the more important uh, figures, in my opinion, that works for Colt is Roland White. Um, Roland White uh, develops, uh, he's working for Colt and he develops the patent for the uh, ability to, uh, for the board through cylinders. So now instead of loading the cylinder from the front, you can now load it from the back. Mm. And he takes that to Colt and Colt's like, get out of here. Um, I don't know if he had that weird voice, but, um, <laughs> and so Roland White leaves Colt and sells his patent to, to Smith and Wesson. And there's a whole cavalcade of things that go down with Roland White and Smith and Wesson over the years. But he was working for Colt. He offered it to Colt and um, Colt said no, which is very kind of poignant part in that history. Um, but it's always important to know that the, we know the iconic names, but it's not just Sam Colt. It is so many other people yeah. working and designing for him. And the same goes with Winchester. Oliver Winchester was a shirt manufacturer. There are several patents out in his name, but he actually almost bankrupted New Haven Arms Company before it ever got off the ground because when he bought the rights um, as a shareholder, um, from Smith and Wesson, he actually didn't even realize he was sitting on a patent for ammunition that Smith and Wesson had left behind as part of the sale that would have saved his company. He would he didn't mm. know enough about the gun business to know that that was even there and available. And so, you know, for uh, Winchester in the early days, it was really Benjamin Tyler Henry who was a big player, um, and then Nelson King, Winchester and Benjamin Tyler Henry they part ways. <laughs> Um, that's right. a fun story, but, um, Browning gets allegedly discovered by Thomas Bennett, who is a uh, president of Winchester. He's also Oliver Winchester's son-in-law. Um, he's a very, he's very, very important to Winchester history. And he's probably the one that made it successful. Um, and he, the story goes that he did discover Browning and he paid Browning, um, for the in the white prototypes. The agreement was, you know, we'll buy the in the white prototypes for long guns, rifle shotguns, um, kind of exclusive exclusively, um, which is how you get handguns and machine guns. Another thing that Browning works on with other companies during that time period. And the breakup really occurs at the turn of the 20th century with uh, the development of Browning's semi-automatic shotgun. And we have the letter that Bennett wrote to uh, missionaries and salespeople after the breakup. It really is a breakup um, because what happens is, is that Browning goes to Winchester and says, I want a new deal. Because when Winchester bought the In the White prototypes outright, uh, they you know, could choose to make it. They could choose not to. They could do what they wanted with it, really. And he knew this was a big deal. And so he wanted a royalty. And they were, Winchester at that time was marketing their slide action. So, you know, you've got to, as a business person, you've got to kind of space out the, the releases. And so when he asked for the new deal, they said no dice. And so there's a great letter penned by Thomas Bennett that says, you know, well, you know, John Moses Browning wasn't that big of a deal. We had to modify, you know, pretty much everything to make it commercially, you know, ready for the market. And we have a semi-auto and it's going to do just fine. And he calls Matthew Browning, um, John Moses Browning's full brother. He's got several half-brothers. But Matthew Browning, he calls him, quote, a difficult proposition. <laughs> and um, he references the fact that, you know, I think that, you know, we're going to do just fine without John Moses Browning, but I doubt he will do just as well without us. It's a great letter. We call it the sour grapes letter. Uh, because if you know your Browning history, you know, he did quite well. And his BAR was made by Winchester before he died. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Winchester goes bankrupt in 1931. So it's kind of an interesting little personality play that, that goes on during that history. And that was far more than my two minutes. I am sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's amazing. Like that, you know, in, in that period of our history, I mean, there's obviously been a lot that's happened since uh, a lot of other amazing firearms that have, you know, and, and other technologies have been invented since, since those two guys, uh, you know, walked, walked this earth. But uh, there's, 
so many things. I mean, you look at revolvers today and how much, I mean, how little really has changed in, in terms of revolver technology. Yeah, a few little things here and there, but you know, go back to uh, eighteen to the 1873, you know, and, and like you just talked about, uh, was it Roland White with the, the, the idea to load shells from, from the back of the... Which was uh, not the 1873. Roland White took right. it to Smith & Wesson with their break action. So um, 1873 is one of the... It's not the first um, gun that Colt makes that you can load from behind, but it's their solution to it. Yeah. Right, right. Just, just, I mean, fascinating stuff. I mean, like everything changes from that time forward as far as... And, and then look at how little changes, you know, since that time. It's just kind of fascinating to see how much happened there. Browning, of course, everybody remembers Browning and his contributions. And, you know, during Browning's lifetime, you know, his, he wasn't a household name. Right. Uh, yeah. He, he really worked behind the scenes for Winchester and, and some of these other companies. And, and Colt and, yeah. FN uh, later. One of the things that I really attribute to what we call kind of the golden age of firearms manufacturing in the United States is the Patent Act of 1836, which sounds like the most boring thing I could possibly say, but that's what causes all the lawsuits. It's so exciting, you know, after that, you know, all of the fights, because now you can legally own the right to make something. And Sam Colt takes out two in 1836 for his revolver and or his revolving firearm, because there's a, there's a, you know, a rifle and a shotgun and a, and a handgun. Um, and then he owns the legal right for it until the 1850s. And so um, that I think causes a lot of that fuel for innovation because now people either have to get around the patent or there's a lot of lawsuits that occur with the patent infringement and you see it really kind of develop pretty quickly from there. Um, you know, and one of the things that my assistant curator and I talk about a lot, which we find interesting is that when you look at like firearms development, I mean, everyone looks to America as kind of the bastion of that development, but most of the technologies weren't invented over here. You know, the conically shaped projectile was, uh, you know, John Norton and then Claude Etienne Minier in France. Uh, Jean Samuel Pauly created the first true center fire. Um, mm. The bolt action was uh, the Dreisa needle gun uh, was Prussian. And, you know, the lever action is something that you can say is pretty truly American. I don't know if we've been able to track a, a British, but a lot of those started overseas. And then the Americans kind of capitalized on the technology that was already there and then made it their own kind of thing. But when you hit the 18, you know, 36 Patent Act, you then start to see a lot of innovation going on in the United States. And, you know, you made the comment about, you know, the what has, you know, how much you feel like hasn't changed since we developed this. And that is something we talk about in the new museum. We have a section called Making of the Modern Gun. And it's a play on words because it takes, you know, what you consider modern, semi-automatic, automatic, suppressed, select fire. All of those things were developed um, automatic and semi-automatic in the 1880s. Uh, there is a select fire gun, although it's manually operated in the 1890s. And the, the silencer, which is the original name for it, um, is developed in 1902. So like all of those things that we think are super modern developed over 150 years ago. And it's, it's a really interesting kind of topic of conversation that we are trying to kind of encourage yeah. in the museum is, you know, what do we think of as modern? Because this stuff certainly isn't. <laughs> Mark says next time there's a gun trivia game, I'm on Ashley's team. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like there would be like, um, I would just, I would get all the wrong questions, you know? <laughs> um, sure. But uh, actually true story. There's a trivia group. Uh, there's like a, one of the bars in town, this trivia night. And my assistant curator, who's been here for a little under three years, uh, he's not familiar with how small of a town this is. And there was a whole category for guns and they were some tough questions. Like I tell you, I wasn't there, but like, I can tell you, I would have gotten stumped up on a bunch of the questions mm. and he got one wrong. And it like, before he even left, 
the trivia night, it made it back to me. Like I was getting texts like, Tammy screwed up on this one question. <laughs> and then he showed me the questions. I was like, well, I probably would have screwed up a bunch of those too. Yeah. Uh, Cody's what? Like 12,000 people, maybe? 10,000. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not that big of a place, but you know, probably, I mean, this, this country is probably foremost uh, museum, you know, particularly on Western style uh, firearms. And um, we are the only that I know of, we're the only academically accredited uh, firearms museum mm. in the country. That's amazing. Yeah. And you had, and you headed up. That's, that's remarkable. Um, let's shift gears, <laughs> let's shift gears a little bit here. So, uh, let's talk about concealed carry firearms. Uh, you know, that being, being the concealed carry podcast, um, concealed carry as a, as an idea, as a concept. I mean, I don't know at one time, I'm sure people carried a firearm concealed, but didn't necessarily have a term like I'm doing concealed carry, you know, today it's such a, such a, such such a thing. So where do, does the first concealed, the idea of concealed carry really kind of originate? Well, the, the term concealed carry, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but um, the first real kind of topic of concealment comes when you get the invention of the wheel lock. Um, so that's 1509. So long, long time. That, that's a while uh, ago. <laughs> so the first real true ignition system is the match lock. And the way that that fires very simply is you have a burning rope and you lower it into a pan full of powder that has the touch hole that ignites the powder inside the barrel to fire the gun. Right. You're not really worrying about people concealing that. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on. I could conceal it, but I got to pull it out and light this thing. Light and- <laughs> match. Yeah. It's a, so it wasn't really something that people thought right. about, worried about, you know, it wasn't a topic of conversation, but the wheel lock, which is invented, invented not too much longer. Um, that's really the first time you start seeing the conversation arise about concealment. Now, wheel locks are still like this big, you know, mm. they're not like this big, they're like this big. So, but uh, you know, you wore way more layers back then, but it did become a topic of conversation. I've got a, a exhibition in Houston that I curated that talks a little bit about this. And our new museum talks about this because really the first gun laws that you see getting implemented are a response to the de- invention of the wheel lock and this kind of fear of the ability to conceal guns. And where that comes from is it's a back then, you know, the only people who could carry guns or have guns for hunting were, was the crown and their most loyal subjects. And so like, for example, if you were caught on the countryside in Europe during this time period with a gun and you don't have a like license, which they existed, um, you know, you could be sentenced to death. I mean, they took it very, very seriously. And um, so this topic comes up about the wheel lock and oh no, can you conceal it? And so the original laws that get put into place are, royalty and nobility being worried of assassination. Mm. And that's where that kind of comes into play initially. Um, And it's the thought of, okay, so prior to that, you know, someone has to literally get up and stab you uh, to assassinate you. And now they can shoot from a distance so they don't have to get as close. And that was the concern. And, you know, in 1570 was the first uh, recorded assassination with a firearm, the Earl of Murray. And um, so that's where this whole conversation, you know, comes into play. Um, But the laws continue to kind of evolve and change. And there are early like examples. They're on like, you know, like a fabric uh, printed of kind of a carry permit uh, for that, for your firearms. And we're talking 1600s, 1700s. Um, But initially uh, a lot of the gun laws were uh, nepotism. They were, they were drawn, you know, they were driven by, you know, my friends can have guns and I don't want, you know, everyone to have guns. And so um, that's where you see a lot of the early European laws. But if you read kind of like notaries, um, especially in France in the 1600s, there's an emerging middle class 
that happens, an emerging merchant class that, that occurs. And so if you read kind of the, the probate inventories and the notaries from that time period, you see that it guns and ownership and, and carry becomes a lot more prominent. Um, so as early as the 1660s, uh, there's a, we have it in our exhibition, there's, you know, a notary that lists somebody has 30 firearms. And think about the fact that those are handcrafted pieces that took a long time to be made. I mean, so people were collecting, they were, you know, acquiring, they were accumulating for many, many different purposes. Um, and so that's where a lot of that kind of conversation starts is the 1500s with the development of the wheel lock. Um, over in America, it's, um, I'm trying to think of the first, we've got concealed, there is a concealed firearms ban that goes on really early on. I'm not sure if it's colonies or it'd be right after uh, the revolution, uh, but it's always kind of like state oriented or colony oriented. Um, and then there is uh, the big thing that people talk about when you hit American history is what goes on as people are moving out West. Um, there were policies and laws put into place out in the American West for um, checking your gun when you came into town. And those usually occurred uh, near the ends of cattle drives uh, where you would have people kind of ending up there. And they were concerned that, you know, people, I think my, uh, whatever curator Meredith has wrote the panel about, you know, people flush with pay. They were worried that they would come into the bars and, you know, shoot, you know, shoot them up mm. and all that stuff. But the irony was that it didn't stop anybody from carrying. They just carried concealed. Um, and so the, <laughs> that's where that comes into play a lot, uh, with concealment is kind of the 1800s in the, in the American West and with the development of the Derringer pistol, the smaller kind of pistols, um, that, that actually date to the 1700s. Um, and so in the American West, you see those gun laws kind of get implemented for kind of carry purposes and, and regulating open carry um, and that you have to check your guns. So people just got smaller guns that yeah. they could carry. Um, there's a lot with gun laws in the United States. It's pretty fascinating. Um, but a lot of the laws are more to regulate you know, a particular group early on than it is really for, you know, an overall kind of, Bam. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, so when, uh, you know, I look back and I, I kind of look at some of the, uh, some of the early semi-automatics. I'm mean, obviously there's Derringers and there were some very small revolvers too. Uh, but in the early 1900s, we start to see some of these small, like 32 caliber, yeah. uh, uh, semi-automatics, you know, including some Browning designs. Um, lots of Browning designs. <laughs> yeah. Lots of Browning designs. And, uh, so, you know, now, I, I I look back to that time frame, and I I know that concealed carry wasn't really a thing yet, but those are some really pretty cool guns. I mean, for concealed carry purposes, you mean like a daring deer, you get two rounds, right? Maybe one uh, or one. Well, unless you had like, well, it depends on if you have a Derringer, D-E-R-I-N-G-E-R, -E -E which was Henry Derringer, one. And then if you have a D-E-R-R-I-N-G-E-R, -E -E which is more <laughs> realism, then yes, you can have one. I was thinking one. of that one. <laughs> um, or a revolver, yeah, you have five, six shots, whatever. But now you start getting to uh, small semi-automatics where you can actually, you know, like kind of more similar to like what people are carrying these days. I mean, some people still carry revolvers, but really what people carry these days are small, compact, semi-automatics that are quickly reliable loadable. And so tell us, I mean, like what do, do we know kind of what went into some of the design process and the thinking behind some of these early 1900s uh, semi-automatics that were kind of, you know, like we look at them today, we go, that's a perfect concealed carry gun, maybe a little bit light on caliber, but size wise and carry wise, that'd be, that'd be great to carry. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I'm not a hundred, I have to, I, I'm kind of curious because I'd have to go back to see, you know, exactly what the kind of carry rate and the concealment um, concern. But if you look at um, 
early small guns, they're usually pretty small caliber. Now the Derringer is like 41 caliber. So yeah. it's not, when you look at a lot of like muff pistols, I mean, they're 22 caliber. Yep. And so it's kind of following along that trend. But the interesting thing to note about the development of that semi-auto during this time period is that Browning is not just developing the gun, he's developing the ammo for it as mm. well. And so there's a lot of shift in ammunition production that goes on during this time period, especially as you get in the mid-1800s, as you get the first real metallic centerfire cartridges. Um, and, you know, as a, an aside, um, ammo production is equally important to understanding gun history. And mold, a lot of companies like Winchester, they made their money in ammo. Um, and so you see uh, it's not just, you know, the gun that's changing and the calibers that are changing, but, you know, it's people experimenting with, you know, kind of the effectiveness of the round. Um, the other thing that kind of occurs in the early 1900s in terms of the development of these guns is the fact that the, and how we kind of perceive them today and how the laws kind of started to change by the 1930s was that the culture changes. Uh, drastically in the United States um, at the turn of the 20th century. Um, and I, there's a scholar that wrote about kind of post-Civil War South. And, you know, there's not a lot, as she says, in the primary source documentation that references like when guns, when small guns are used or when guns are used, you know, that it's, you know, oh, the gun, you know, this. It's much more about kind of the whole situation that occurred. But when you hit the 20th century, people start talking about guns differently. They're, they're metaphors, you know, they're symbols. Uh, Chekhov's gun comes about in the 1870s. Uh, you know, don't leave a loaded gun on a stage unless you intend to use it. So like the use of gun as metaphor and symbol drastically changes as you kind of come into a more modern consumer um, era. And so you'll see in advertising, at least from the gun companies at this turn, um, this kind of time frame is they are advocating for defense and, you know, the, the carry of guns. That's one of their many markets. Um, women are a huge part of that as well. There are a lot of those smaller guns that are marketed directly to women. Um, and they're, you know, take them with the culture of the time. Uh, there's a photo yeah. on, me on Instagram where I, I said, you know, just try and try my best not to be helpless because like one of them talks about the helplessness you feel, um, but they are marketing to women. And so yeah. they're, they are like a lot of the guns that get developed are trying to claim a specific market that is there. And as the culture is changing, the way we talk about it is changing, um, which ultimately leads up until like the National Firearms Act and, and the 1930s with some of the other types of guns. Um, and then the other thing that starts to occur in the early 1900s with especially smaller guns and cheaper or affordable guns is um, mass migration into cities. Mm. Um, and there is a, a desire within the government to start tracking crime across state lines. It has nothing to do with guns. I think it's prostitution or something like that, that they're trying to kind of track criminals across state lines. And then the McKinley assassination at the turn of the 20th century is a really big kind of turning point. Um, he's mm. killed with an Iver Johnson um, mm. is what they use, the little Iver Johnson revolvers. And so, um, and that kind of starts, that starts the implementation of what becomes the FBI um, because the newspapers are, rec are reporting anarchy, um, you know, and whether or not that was what was behind it, I, I, I don't know, but the newspapers are reporting that kind of thing. And so this idea of the smaller gun in the civilian sphere becomes kind of a much different thing than it might have been earlier on. Um, and then you see that those don't necessarily get as much of a military adoption. They do for a little bit, but when you develop the 1911, I mean, that's the one that wins out with the contract until the 1980s. Um, and so you get kind of both options available, but you almost watch mm. Browning semi-autos grow. They grow in size from the 1899, yeah. 1900, uh, 1905, which is the 
hates that's originally from 1911. It needs to kind of grow in size um, as something that's a little bit easier to handle um, because you don't need to conceal it. You don't need to worry about any of that when you're in the military. You know, you're carrying it, you know, on your person, but it's not a concealment question. Yeah. Speaking of uh, Browning and the 1911, why do you think that particular design has become so iconic in American history, American gun history, but still is, I mean, for millions of Americans, still their choice for carry gun or variations of it. Um, so it's a good design. <laughs> you know, I, mean, I mean, it's just a it's cop just out a answer. Solid design. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, and, and when you find something that works, you know, you can modify it and make it better. But I mean, it's kind of, stood the test of time as a, a very strong, stable type of firearm. And, you know, and it's also a combination of, you know, if the military kept using it and then the civilian market still wanted it and the demand was still there, I mean, it's going to kind of stay in effect. Yeah. Uh, even though we have, you know, the striker fire versus hammer fire debates, you know, today, but yeah, it's just <laughs> good design. Sorry. I could have got like given you like a real academic answer, but it's just good design. <laughs> uh, you know, one thing, uh, and it's probably not the first semi-auto. Maybe it is. I don't know. I guess I guess I don't actually know that much about some of the other guns from that time period. Uh, everyone knows the 1911, of course, but it's a 45 ACP, right? Whereas the oh, 1908, yeah, <laughs> the 1908, the 1903s, like some of those other designs were were quite a bit smaller in caliber. Uh, you know, so I, I, do you know anything at all about what the thought process was that went into like we're going to make this semi-automatic gun? It's big. It's kind of heavy. It fires a real man's round, if I do say. Um, you know, instead of this twenty-five or or three eighty, you know, caliber uh, or thirty-two uh, caliber rounds. Um, are you talking about like why Browning would have you know beefed up to that round? I mean, they had a forty-five revolver. It was you know, sure. Cold. You know, it was 45 Colt. I mean, so it's not like it was unheard of. So I don't know. I don't know what the thought process is, uh, would have been behind it. I mean, it just other than the fact that the 45 ACP, he hadn't developed it yet. Um, but you'll see like a lot of early cartridges. I mean, there's early intermediate cartridges um, that get developed in the 1800s. Um, so you see that the foundation is laid for that, but I don't know. Yeah, I was just curious because I mean, I, I see all these other semi-automatics from the early 1900s that, like I said, they're they're all they all just seem kind of puny to me, and, and actually they they kind of are next to a 1911, and then all of a sudden this this beast of a gun shows up and you know to the scene is adopted by the military, and of course uh, goes on to win two world wars. <laughs> um, yeah, the uh, all on its own. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, <laughs> the the Browning High Power, of course, uh, in a gun that wasn't actually finished and uh, completed during John Moses Browning's lifetime, but again, iconic and you know one of the first, uh, at least that I recall or or I'm aware of, you know, double stack, you know, somewhat high capacity mm -hmm. uh, handguns that that came came around. I mean, I think that also kind of changed things in a big way as well, as well. Yeah. And that's one of the things that, you know, when you talk about earlier on, you said, you know, feel like you have like all this innovation and it kind of just like stops. I mean, people do take for granted that like there are lots of stuff. There's like lots of things that get added and strengthened uh, with ammo and firearms history and technology and, and modified throughout, you know, the 20th century and the 21st century now that may not seem like a big deal, but, you know, sometimes small changes are, you know, hugely significant to different technologies. Yeah. And obviously the, I just want to point out that I still have, you know, the, the live feed up and running and I, man, I talk with my hands a lot. <laughs> and obviously, uh, uh, the advent of, you know, 
modern materials, better steels, uh, better manufacturing uh, processes and and uh, practices. You know, allowing for higher press pressures, hotter smokeless powders, for instance. I mean, all of that is uh, which is uh, in the eighteen hundreds. Yeah, yeah, but uh, still, I mean, that that's really led to kind of where we are to this t- at this point. Yeah. Um, so a couple of questions from some listeners or viewers here. Yeah. I, I want to throw at you if we still have a little bit of time. I have my glasses on, so like I've been trying to like <laughs> see people's uh, stuff. So one question was, uh, and he asked it twice. So Craig really wants to know if the museum has a puckle gun. No, we don't. Uh, <laughs> there are only a few in the country uh, or in the world. Sorry. Um, and there is one in a private collection, but I won't say whose collection, but sure. I have seen one in the years, one in the U.S. Um, but, uh, no, we don't have a, yeah. buckle. We have a picture of a buckle. Fun fact. I guess we have fun. What, uh, did you guys know that the, we were doing some research not too long ago on like, you know, the way people talk about guns today and everyone always references the puckle gun, uh, you know, which was just a weird weird little piece of technology there um it only fired from what i saw like eight or nine rounds a minute and i thought that was real slow <laughs> and uh we were joking around about it and then my uh curatorial assistant dan was just going boom he was waiting <laughs> boom <laughs> i was like timing it out and we were just kind of shocked at how slow it was uh, <laughs> But that's back in the 1700s, right? So uh, yeah, uh, it's 17 or 16. I can't yeah. remember. But um, the, but we do have um, several magazine-fed flintlocks from the 1700s. Wow. Yeah, we also have from the 1600s a gas-sealed gun that has like a rotating four-barrel thing, and the the end of the barrel kind of moves out of the way, and then you pull this lever mm-hmm. back up, and it seals the gun back up so that you can fire the next round. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating as well. What's the most valuable weapon in the collection? Well, two things to that. One, I can't answer it because the collection is priceless. We're not allowed to answer that question. Uh, it's considered a conflict of interest. Sure. And uh, there's like, many reasons behind it. One is I don't want you to steal it. Uh, but the other one is, 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 you know, with museum artifacts, what is valuable today may not be valuable tomorrow. So we don't really, you know, we have insurance values, obviously, on, on the collection, but it changes um, a lot. And then I, the other thing I always want to say is I don't call the guns in the collection weapons. Um, sure, and sure. the reason being is what we try to, I actually did an interview with Ted Koppel a couple of years ago and he asked me, how many weapons do you have in the collection? I said, zero. <laughs> um, and the reason for that, I know it's semantics is the fact that, you know, um, you know, not all firearms are weapons and not all weapons are firearms. And the artifacts in the collection are not, you know, to be used for those purposes. Can they be? Well, then they become, but they're not supposed to be. Yep. And um, we, the best example that we give of kind of the transition from like an in-use artifact that something that's in museum was one time someone rode a, a horse um, up to the front of the museum and, you know, and he was donating the saddle that he was on. And so he's on this horse, he rides it up to the museum, he jumps off the saddle and then a bunch of us nerds in like white gloves, you know, come up and be like, take the saddle off of the horse with our gloves on. Uh, you know, so it's just a different, totally transition. Sure. Yeah. That's That's actually really funny. Yeah. And like tell everyone, do not correct a veteran or a military person because, you know, that's, training with you know firearms and weapons in the military and stuff. the military gallery we don't you know we use it interchangeably it, it was a military person that asked the question just so you know uh, yeah yeah so we always do you know, that's the that's the, my that's my uh you know only exception in that world is that, that's why we do that uh because we do want people to kind of understand distinctions yep, yep. Um, and it's everyone can argue it's semantics but you know it does matter when you're talking to people that don't know about guns to yep. kind of get them out of the mindset that all firearms are designed 
you know, for defense or the military when a lot of guns today, especially are designed for targets shooting. Absolutely. And that is fair. Uh, Ashley, do you have a favorite gun in the collection? That's probably a really hard question. I I have a different answer every time uh, because it depends on like what I'm researching from like day to day, you know, so, so I'll change uh, my answer up a bunch. But one of the ones that I really um, am into right now is actually a wheelock pistol. It wasn't on display in the old museum. I walked by it. Can't tell you how many times. And I'm like, that thing has to be a reproduction. There's no way that that is a real wheel lock, you know, but I'm busy with renovation. So I never really looked much into it. And then uh, we want, we have an annual symposium where we invite museum professionals from around the world. And the Art Institute of Chicago curator came out, and this is much more his you know, area of expertise. He took it completely apart. It is original, and it dates to the 30 years war. Wow. Yeah. I, I thought it was a repro, like, for Does, years. I mean, it's just in <laughs> such good condition, or? Yeah, it's pristine. Wow. So probably didn't get a lot of action, <laughs> um, but it is from that time period. We sure. traced all the numbers on it and markings and everything. Naturally, yeah, that kind of leads to another question. Uh, a lot of people have interest in firearms that have some sort of tie to history, like being used in a famous uh, battle or uh, whatever, gunfight. Uh, do you have anything like that that, that kind of piques people's interest? Um, yes. We've got many things that are, you know, we actually um, brought the Colonial Williamsburg curator out to look at all of our flintlocks. And we have a gun, uh, a brown vest that could be traced to Waterloo. Which is pretty wow. neat. Yeah. Uh, but no, we do have a lot of those kind of guns that that link to some kind of historical time period. I think one of my favorites uh, in terms of just like, uh, and it's funny because it's an embarrassing story for me, is that like, you know, I talk a lot about about, about the distinction between use and misuse of firearms. True. And um, one of the examples that I use a lot is the Thompson submachine gun. And the Thompson, you know, was developed for the military, had a secondary purpose with law enforcement, but then, you know, it was misused. Um, albeit infrequently in the grand scheme of how many Thompsons were made, but like by gangsters. And so it's the gangster gun. Um, When we do have an Illinois State Police Thompson in the collection, but I used to always stand up in front in a tour and give the tour in front of the Thompson about the youths of the Thompson versus the misuse and the pop culture kind of sensationalism around it. So it's like a gangster gun and there's nothing on the label and you have to know to go into the archive to find it. And one day I'm walking with the founding curator and he goes, you know, oh, and that was used in a bank robbery. And I was like, damn it. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it is like, you know, poster child for the gun. Um, you know, and so we, we learned that that was a bank robbery Thompson. It allegedly had jammed. During the robbery, he left it behind and it was confiscated by the police. And then the police um, traded it to Winchester um, for some riot guns and then it became a part of the Winchester collection. But we would have totally lost that story mm. had the you know founding curator not been walking by, pointed it out. And then we went back you know, into the records because we've got records about the gun and then we've got the archives. Um, and so, you, you know, sometimes you have to go all the way back there and they're not you know necessarily as easy to track down. That's awesome. You wouldn't know to track them down. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Um, someone wanted to know if you have your own personal collection. Hmm. Um, so there is, I'm laughing because my, what I collect is weird. Um, 
So I do have some firearms. There is the curator code of ethics that you don't collect what you curate. Sure. Um, I do obviously have modern guns that I use uh, for target shooting, but I do have some older guns. The um, protocol in that fear is that you can still collect what you curate, but you have to, if it's if you have access to something that your museum collection doesn't have, you must offer it to the museum first. Yep. Um, and don't worry, I can't afford anything we don't have. Um, so I've got a couple of things, um, but I collect uh, naked lady gun advertisements. <laughs> uh, Winchester in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, uh, European Winchester ads, uh, they have some pretty interesting uh advertisements there's like one where like this it's i think it's it's either italian or spanish and the woman is like um she's being branded by the winchester logo and she's wearing like assless chops um and she's like oh <laughs> um and then i've got one that uh uses uh the uh pun riding shotgun um and yeah so i collect yeah naked racy winchester ads <laughs> that's hilarious yeah. uh I would not have guessed you to answer with that. Uh, <laughs> That's I, I, I don't even know that. if I knew anything like that actually existed. I I'm, I could think of some some advertisements I've seen where where it's kind of scantily clad women, but actually naked. Uh, naked a lot, scantily clad in most. Um, you know, uh, there is one that I'm getting soon that wasn't an advertisement, but it was made for someone as like a thank you. Um, he gets tied to Bob Allen. Um, huh. and so I'm getting that soon, but, um, yeah, mostly scantily clad, but you can see everything. <laughs> uh, but what's funny about it is the fact that these are all European ads. And one of the ads, the person that, um, sold it to me had said that John Owen didn't actually sign off on all of them. Um, and, but then if you look at the U S ads, man, it's like vanilla. They actually hired playboy to do a like, playboy photographer to do some of their, like their bird buster series and stuff, but everyone's fully clothed and, and that, um, but no, I have a, I have a strong passion for collecting scantily clad ladies um, yeah. with old gun advertisements. <laughs> We've probably taken you uh, long enough from from your busy schedule and getting everything ready for the the museum. So, folks uh, that that are still asking questions, I apologize. I, I wish no, I, could... I will, guys. I will um, later today. I'll try to answer as much as I can. There you go. So feel free to keep uh, dropping some questions in, and, and Ashley will try to come back and when she has a moment and and respond to those. Um, Again, Ashley, I appreciate you for coming on the Concealed Carry Podcast with us today. Uh, A reminder, in fact, one of the questions here towards the end was, again, when does the renovation actually finish? And uh, if you could repeat for us again when the grand opening is and all that stuff so we can give you one more good plug on that. Yeah. So Cody Firearms Museum at the Buffalo Bill Center of the West in Cody, Wyoming, and our grand reopening is July 6th. If you're coming out before then, we do have two galleries open for people. Because we didn't want people like running us down with pitchforks because part of the, you know, the museum wasn't open. So, um, yeah, so two galleries open now. The rest will be open July 6th. And, you know, we'll still be making tweaks and whatnot, you know, after July 6th, uh, you know, obviously. But uh, the whole thing will be open by then. Awesome. So if you're able to make the trip or you, you know, or you by chance, I, I don't know, actually, I suppose we have a listener that's somewhere close by, but folks, you should make the effort to uh, get out to the, uh, to the Fires Museum. I'm really looking forward to seeing it in uh, early August, Ashley, and look forward to maybe actually shaking your hand and meeting you in person. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so uh, good luck with everything. Good luck with uh, the yes. work and the renovation, and I hope it all comes, comes together really nicely for you. Me too. <laughs> Great. And that's that's a wrap. Uh, I got really nothing else to add. Uh, that is, 
we could probably go on all day long just asking question after question after question, and she would just keep rattling off her responses. Uh, what a dream job. I mean, I'm sure there's, uh, as is the case with many jobs, I mean, there, there's there's probably some administrative things, maybe some paperwork things that maybe aren't as uh, fun or cool or exciting, but being able to be around and look at and handle and research guns like like she's able to do like that sounds like a dream job to me of course i think i'm already kind of living my dream job as it is uh, being able to do things like the concealed carry podcast be a firearms instructor and do everything here that i do at concealedcarry.com full time so i'm also truly blessed in that regard we appreciate all of you our listeners our viewers those of you that choose to to view on facebook uh, we appreciate your support of us and everything we do here and uh, hope that we can continue to earn that support. So uh, a reminder to try out the 14-day free trial of Guardian Nation. You can check that out at concealedcarry.com forward slash 14-day. Now that link is uh, takes you straight to, our, uh, to, to the cart. It adds that to the cart, and uh, you check out. If you want more information about the benefits of Guardian Nation membership, then go to guardiannation.com. You'll see everything detailed there, and it's pretty cool. So with that, I'm going to let you all go. Take care. Have a great day and a great weekend. We'll be back next Tuesday with more content here from the podcast. And, of course, don't forget about our shop talks. Those are Facebook Live only, uh, or, or you can watch them after the fact, but they are on Facebook only. So you can go over to our Facebook page like that. Uh, hit, you know, View our Facebook Lives that we do that we call Shop Talk on Mondays at 12 noon Mountain Time, or you can watch all of the others that we have in the archive there. You can also anytime go and view the archive at concealedcarry.com forward slash shop talk. So we'll have another great Shop Talk on Monday at 12 noon, and our podcast again Tuesdays and Thursdays also at the same time, and all those times are Mountain Time. So with that, a reminder to train right, train often, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care. reminder that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand applicable laws. The Concealed Carry Podcast, Concealed Carry Inc., ConcealedCarry.com, and their affiliates strive to share insights and stories about firearm-related incidents and laws, but things could be different where you live, or laws may have changed by the time you listen to this. We cannot be held liable for your actions based on the information shared in this podcast.